We'll be in the first chapter tonight. Have you ever felt out of place? Like you didn't really belong? This is a feeling that I felt a lot when I was in high school. I had a difficult time making like really strong friendships. Sure, I had friends, I was friendly to people, but I, I didn't make super strong connections. I was nobody's best friend. As a result of that, I didn't really get invited to marry very many parties, uh, which was okay because I didn't really enjoy them anyway. I would get there and I would try and talk to people, but I always got the sense that they were more interested in talking to somebody else. And so I would move from group to group, trying to be a part of the conversation, but always feeling kind of on the outs, like I didn't belong. And I felt this feeling not just on a social level, but also on a spiritual level as well. You know, even the friends that I had at school, we were very different. We wanted different things. We thought differently. I remember being in my ninth grade government class. And to my knowledge, I'm the only person in that class that was arguing uh, for the fact that I thought abortion was wrong in all circumstances. I remember trying to make friends with the guys at school, but not being able to jive with them because they were ogling the cheerleaders or the other girls at school. Or on the other side of that, you know, being a part of the groups that I really was involved in, the theater groups and the art groups, I, there were a lot of people that were homosexual or were supporting that. And I was just like, that's not me. I, I was not able to jive with those people, and it made it really difficult. It made me feel on the outs, like I didn't belong. And this feeling of not belonging is one that Peter talks about in the beginning of the first verse here of 1 Peter 1. He begins his epistle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen people who are living as foreigners. So he calls them chosen people living as foreigners or elect exiles. So we get the thesis statement in a lot of ways from, these, from this phrase here, elect exiles or people, chosen people living as foreigners. God has chosen us. So we are part of his kingdom. We are kingdom citizens. But in the same way, we are exiles. We are living as foreigners in a land where we don't belong, where the culture is different. The people talk differently. They act differently. And it, we get a sense frequently that we don't belong. And it makes us want to assimilate because we get this feeling constantly that we are foreigners. And Satan, like he always does with his temptations, wants to take something good God has given us and turn it to his own means. So as we live as kingdom citizens, it makes it hard because God has given us a sense that we want belonging. And we will find that belonging ultimately with God. But Satan wants to tell us that we can find that belonging right here on earth. We can find it with people if we'd only, you know, become part of the culture and give up some of these, you know, antiquated biblical ideas. And we have to stand strong. We have to say, no, I want to find my sense of belonging in God because I understand that that is better. So Peter is speaking to people who are going to be in persecution, people who are feeling like 
exiles, feeling like foreigners. And he's going to give them some encouragement that's going to help them when they find themselves in these situations where they're tempted to give up, where they're tempted to turn their back on God. And he's going to give them three things that they can remember that will help them to endure persecution. Three H's. The first thing they're going to remember is their heritage. So he tells them in 1 Peter 1 verse 20, an important event that happened in their past as Christians. He says of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So one of the really important things to being a citizen of any nation is that you have a vital heritage. And we can look back on, say, our heritage as American citizens, and we can be proud of the roots that we have as we you know, left Britain and made a stand for freedom. And we can be proud of the plans that went into action that made it so that we could have our own nation. But how much more proud can we be to be part of a nation that was planned from before the beginning of time? It says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was man manifest in the last times for the sake of you. That this plan that God had from before the beginning of the world, when Jesus was there with him, it came into effect at this time in the first century for these people, uh, for this church, and is still having ramifications now. So we've got centuries, millennia of, of history of God planning this out and it working out in his favor. And all along that time, there are people, prophets, who were talking about the way God's plan was unfolding. And they were searching eagerly to see how and what exactly they were prophesying about. It says in verse 10, we'll read verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we know that we have this history that lasted long periods of time, and all along there were these men, as it says, prophets, who were inquiring, and they wanted to know what exactly was going to happen. And you get the sense that, like, Moses, you know, he prophesied that, there were, that God would raise a prophet like him, but he didn't know exactly what that meant. Or Isaiah, when he prophesied of a suffering servant, he didn't know when that was going to take place or how. Or David, you know, when he was told that he would have a kingdom that would reign forever. What did that mean exactly? And they could understand in part, but they all understood that there was something fuller there. And it tells us that in, in verse 12 here, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So they were all searching, inquiring, what is the end of their prophecy? But we 
No, we have Jesus. We can read the full story. And so here we stand now, centuries, millennia later, at the most present manifestation of this divine plan that's been going on and on and on. And it's not just a a massive plan for everyone, but there's also individual parts that we all play. He points to uh, to this idea in verse 18, where he says that you were not, sorry, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So not just do we have this national history, but we have a personal history. And our personal history all begins with us being not part of the kingdom. We were involved in these ways of the world, and we saw and were rescued and brought into God's kingdom, and that is really exciting. But it wasn't, you know, just small things. A whole line of events led up to us being a part of this kingdom. You know, God had to, in the days of, uh, of Israel, bring Israel out of Egypt. He had to take millennia to show his working out, his faithfulness in this nation to teach what ends up being a, a huge you know, multi-millennial object lesson that now gets translated by Jesus as not a kingdom of, of people, a race, but a kingdom of people united by a love for God. And so with that, Jesus begins a church and he teaches the apostles and the apostles teach their disciples and on and on through time until, you know, your great-great-grandfather or however you got the gospel, you know, they learned and they taught and they were preached to and you personally have been taught by many people, by your parents and all of these people have had an influence on you and that is your heritage. All throughout this time, God's plan has been working out so that you could be part of his kingdom. Now the world is going to come along and they're going to say, look, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And you could say, well, I don't know, maybe, but I've got a history that spans thousands and thousands of years. Why would I trust you, this person who doesn't live very long, to do this thing that's only going to make me happy for a day, when instead I could trust God, who's always had my back, who's got this long history. And so when we reflect on all of the things that led up to us and all of the things that allowed us to become kingdom citizens, then we gain courage, we gain strength. And when the world confronts us with persecution and with temptation, we can say, no, thank you. Because we We know what we're about, and we know our heritage. And so we gain strength from looking at our past, at our heritage, but we also gain strength from looking to the future, at our hope. So we can remember our hope. Uh, In verse 3, he begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he says we're born again to a living hope through resurrection. 
But what is this living hope? Well, he goes on to elaborate. We are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And you compare that with, you know, what the world has to offer. You know, they can give you money. They can give you a house. They can give you, you know, these passing things. But we all understand everything here is temporary, that cars fail, houses have the roofs fall in, people die, friends leave you. Nothing on earth is something that we can hold on to forever, but we are promised an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. That's something you can take to the bank If you are faithful to God, then he will be faithful to his end of the bargain. And this inheritance is guarded in the same way that we are guarded. As it says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That we are awaiting a further salvation. And you might say, well, I thought I already got salvation. Well, in some sense, yes. You know, we have a salvation here on earth from sin, but we understand fully, or we understand that there is going to be a fuller revelation of that salvation in the end time. Because as we look around, we see, look, there is still death. There is still peril and persecution and these things of this world. And we long for heaven where we will be fully saved from all of the difficulties of this world and be in heaven with God. And the other thing that we get fully in heaven is a fullness of our relationship with Jesus. In verse 8, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, Right now, we know Jesus, but we don't know him fully because we haven't seen him. But we have hope that as we look toward heaven, that one day we're going to get that. And so what does it look like and what does it mean for our lives that we are living with a heavenward focus? Well, in 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 17, it tells us that we're going to live, if we're looking toward the end, with fear. It says in verse 17, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So we're told that as there is a heaven, there is also a judgment. And if we are not living right, if we are not living faithfully to God, then we have everything to fear in that judgment. And so keeping our eyes on the end will give us fear. But on the flip side of that, we know passages like Galatians 6 verse 9 that tell us not to grow weary in doing good because there's a sense in which sometimes we look around the world and we say, what's the point? Why do we do good? This was the problem in the days of Malachi where the people were saying, look, I could do right, but why should I? Good people don't get rewarded. Bad people don't get what's coming to them. And God tells them no. I have a book of remembrance, and I will make sure that if you are doing right, you are rewarded. And if you are doing wrong, you will get punished. And so we can live our life with hope that even if we don't see it here, that we understand that 
people get what's coming to them, whether that's good or bad. And that helps us to reframe our lives and reframe our actions. And finally, as we're looking toward heaven, that's going to affect our life by helping us realize how small things are. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes his vexation and his, his troubles here on earth that he's, he's experienced, and he describes them as, mo, as light momentary afflictions. And you can ask, well, how are these, you know, these beatings, imprisonments, how are they light or momentary? And he, we understand that he can say that because he's got his eye on heaven, and this tiny, short 80 years of life are nothing compared to eternity. And so when we live our life with that in perspective, it gives us hope, and it helps us to live uh, bolder, better, stronger lives for God. And so as kingdom citizens, we can look at our past, our heritage, and that gives us strength. And we can look to our future, our hope, and that will also give us strength. But there's one other thing that we can remember, and it's our present. As we look to not our hope, not our heritage, but who we are. So, uh, who are we? We are kingdom citizens. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a kingdom citizen? What does that look like? Well, just like any culture is defined by certain attributes, you are able to recognize a kingdom citizen by the way that they're living and the actions that they're taking. So for example, we might describe a kingdom citizen as someone who is bold. So the book of Daniel, chapter 3, describes the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this evil king says, bow down to this idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, well, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. And they say, look, we don't care. God is able to rescue us. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to rescue us, but he could. And Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fiery furnace, and God does rescue them from the fire. What gives them that boldness? What gives them that faith? It's an understanding that God has power that's beyond this world. Uh, Peter also describes some ways that we can obtain this sort of boldness. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we have boldness because we understand that there's something more to this life. That when we endure under trial, that brings us honor in the end. It also brings glory to God. As God is sending us out on a, on a mission, he sends us out and we should be bold for him. But this chapter also gives us another reason why we can be bold. In verse 23, it says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is a good news that was preached to you. So here... We're con we get a contrast of two different types of seed. There's a physical seed, an earthly seed, and that, you know, makes the grass that withers. And, you know, we can look around and we can see everything has an end. But there's also an imperishable seed. And it says, that's what we're made of. 
We're born again of this imperishable seed. We're born again of the imperishable word of God that remains forever. And so as we go out into the world, this gives us a sort of invincibility. Not that, you know, we can't die or get sick or like be physically punished, uh, but that we understand that there's something greater about our mission, that, you know, people can stop us, but they can't stop the gospel, that people can take away our homes, but they can't take away our imperishable inheritance in heaven. And so as we live and are reminded of who we are through God, that gives us boldness, and it makes us uh, able to go out in the world and talk to people with greater strength. We can talk to those people in our office who are like, hey, you want to come out for a beer? And you say, no, that's not what I'm about. That's, that's not what God wants. Or, you know, you know people who are like in an adulterous relationship and it gives you the boldness to stand up and say, no, that God is not pleased with you. Or to stand up when the people at the office want to gossip and you say, no, that God is not pleased with that. That is not who I am. And so we take a stand. We're bold because we are kingdom citizens. Another defining attribute of a kingdom citizen is what I'm going to call irrational faith. Now, I want to qualify that irrational in that it is irrational to a world that just sees what is physical around them. But we understand that there's, there's something more. That's something that the world is not getting. You know, from purely physical terms, if someone were to say to you know, a 99-year-old man with an 89-year-old wife, you're going to have a child, we would say, that's ridiculous. But when God says that to Abraham, Abraham believed God, and he had Isaac a year later. You know, we see people in the Bible believing that God can do these ridiculous things because God does ridiculous things all the time. He is capable of doing things that are far beyond what we can imagine. You know, he created this entire universe, and we are called to believe in him because he does incredible things. Another example of a highly underrated Old Testament Bible story is the story of Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and these enemies come up against, his, uh, against Judah, and he gets scared. And so he prays to God. He says, God, rescue me from these people. And God says, here's what you're going to do, Jehoshaphat. You are going to go out on the battlefield. You are not going to lift a finger because you are going to stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And so Jehoshaphat, he goes out to battle, not with a group of ready men for battle, but with a group of men ready to praise God. And they sing and they raise a loud voice. And when they do that, that's their battle strategy. God comes in, routes the enemies to fight each other, God wins the battle for them. See how much faith that took. This faith to do what would in so many situations be called crazy or madness or ridiculous. But we understand that since God can do the impossible, we can believe in God to do the impossible. We are called to believe that he raised Jesus from the dead and that he will do the same with us. That takes great faith. We are called to believe that God created this universe. That takes a lot of faith. And there are a lot of people in the world, they just don't get it. They don't believe because they've closed their ears to belief. But we 
understand. We have a whole book that shows of God and the way he has been faithful, the way he has done incredible things. And so we have faith. And so our faith defines us as kingdom citizens. Um, Another way that uh, we are defined as kingdom citizens is as people who hate sin. You can see that in the book of Ezra. Ezra finds out that the the people have been intermarrying with these foreign wives. And that is a no-no in the Bible because foreign women take their heart away from the Lord and send them into idolatry. It's a bad time. So he finds out that this is happening and this causes an intense reaction in him. He tears his clothes. He pulls hair out of his beard, out of his hair. It's like, ow. And he goes to his house and he just prays. And he sits appalled because the sin has affected him so deeply and it's so frustrating and upsetting to him that he has a very intense reaction. And I'd like to submit that kingdom citizens are defined by the way that they hate sin, the, fact, the way that they take a stand against sin in others, but also the way that they are appalled by their own sin. If you will, turn with me to the book of Exodus. Sorry, not Exodus, Ezekiel. Uh, In Ezekiel 16, we get uh, a a story that shows God's love for Israel. So in this story, Israel is uh, pictured as this child that was recently born, not even, like they didn't even cut the the cord right, and like it's still wallowing its blood. They just took it out and they threw it in a field. And so God comes along and he sees this child and he washes it up, and he, you know, cleans it and gets it uh, what it needs. And then later on, he comes back, and it's reached full maturity, and she's a beautiful woman. So he takes her, and he, you know, gives her his, his cloak, and he marries her. He cleans her up. He gives her jewelry. He gives her rich clothing. But as opposed to what would naturally occur, you know, we would think this wonderful gift from the man would would expect a reciprocal reaction, that she would also give herself fully. But that is not what Israel does. Instead, she sells herself as a prostitute, and she uses the jewelry and the rich clothes to buy more people to prostitute herself with. And this is incredibly frustrating to God. But God says, you know what? Despite all of this, despite the fact that you have blatantly hated me with the way that you have acted, I am not going to step back on my end of the covenant. And so in verse 62, he says he's going to hold fast his covenant with her for a purpose. In verse 62 and 63, it says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. A sin of this magnitude requires an enormous reaction, and that is just to be quiet, to put your hand over your mouth, and just be ashamed of who you are. And from there to work, to be a better mate to the Lord, to be a better, you know, wife uh, to, of the, 
be a better wife to Jesus. That's, that's what we're called to do. That we are called to look at ourselves and to be ashamed of who we are and to let God shape us and change us. Now, how else would you define a kingdom citizen? We've got boldness, we've got faith, we've got hating sin. But one that I would be intensely remiss to, uh, to skip over is, is love. Uh, in John... In 1 John, we're told that God is love. So it shouldn't surprise us that as citizens of God's kingdom, that we would be defined by love. And in John 13, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we see that being a kingdom citizen isn't a card-carrying sort of membership. We don't walk around and, and, and show people by, by any physical thing. We show them by the way that we love. And that has physical application. You know, we love people by doing kind things for them. As uh, John, again, in, in 1 John 3, he explains, you know, if you see your brother and you have things that he needs and you see him in, in need, like, how are you going to say that you love him if you don't go and share with him what you have? Because we love in deed. Now, of course, love is also a, a feeling. And to have a relationship with God and not to have uh, you know, a, a feeling of love, that would be a missing and important part of love. But also to say that we love God or to love our, our fellow brothers and never to act on that would also be missing a really important part of love. So how do we love? We take care of the needs of our brothers. You know, we, we help them move. You know, we clean the church building. Or, you know, maybe it's, it's more of a spiritual need. Maybe we come to them and, you know, we admonish the idle or we encourage the faint-hearted. There are a lot of ways that we can love. And that's why I think in 1 Peter, he describes us as being people that love. Uh, he explains in verses 22 and 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He says that the result of your imperishable seed and the fact that you've been born again should result in you loving. And there are a lot of reasons for this. We've talked about, you know, God is love. So if we're made of, you know, the seed of his word, then we would also be about love. And we also can imagine, you know, as, as kingdom citizens, we are foreigners in this world. And so we are told to love one another because where else are we going to get love? Where else are we going to feel brotherhood except with one another? And so this love pulls us together. So kingdom citizens defined by love. Uh, and one last one that is uh, sort of related to love is that kingdom citizens are defined by encouragement. In Hebrews chapter 10, we get a very similar idea of what's going on in 1 Peter. So in Hebrews, we've got a persecution that's coming on these people, and it's tempting them to, to leave, to want to desert. And he says that when you reflect on Jesus, you're not going to want to do that. And when you reflect on Jesus, it's going to prompt you to action. And in verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think the crux of this statement is in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
Now, this is an incredibly personal command because the way that I am supposed to serve God is very different from the way that, you know, someone who is older is supposed to serve God or the way that someone who has children is supposed to serve God. We can serve God in a variety of ways as as parents, as servants, as preachers. And so we would encourage people in a variety of ways. But we need to understand about all of our brothers the way that they are intending to serve God and how then that we can encourage them in that. And that's going to require some really real conversations where we talk to someone and we say, hey, how do you think God is using you? What do you think that God intends as the purpose for your life? Not just to serve him, not just to enjoy God, but deeper, more personal, more specific than that. And how can I help you in that? How are you attempting to grow in that? What can I pray for you about? And these kinds of things, these encouragements, are not just going to make us stronger, but they're also, as we encourage others, we're going to encourage ourselves because filling up others is the best way to fill ourselves up. And so kingdom citizens are defined by encouragement. And that is is beautiful. So as we conclude here, when we're faced with this wild world, this world that's really difficult, this world that is persecuting us, this world that is making us feel lonely or out of place, we've got two options. And it's, it's kind of like if you know, a group of foreigners came over from, say, China. You know, they've all got a shared history. They've all got a shared culture. And they've got two choices. Either they can assimilate and become part of the American culture, or they can get together. They can talk. They can remind themselves of stories of what made them a, you know, a great nation. They can remind themselves of, of the culture that they share. They can eat you know, the food. They can talk their language. They can be with people that get them. And so in that same sort of way, we are called to be foreigners. But we have two choices. Either we can allow ourselves to become part of the world so that we look like the world and we talk and we act like the world, or we can spend time with one another, reminding each other of the culture, and we can reflect on our great heritage. We can look to the future together of the great hope that is laid up for us, because we all want to go home. We don't want to be here in this foreign land. And we can remind each other of who we are and the commitment that we have made to God as kingdom citizens. So the question then comes to you. Are you going to give up or are you going to hold on tight to the God who has given you an incredible heritage, a hope that is inspiring, and an identity as his chosen person? You decide, hold on or let go.